You're listening, You're to, listening radio. to Radio Free Satan.com. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. to Nine Sense. Nine Sense is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. It is June! Holy shit, it's already June! It is summer the second! I can't believe it's June already! I don't know about where you live, but here in Utah, spring came and went. Now, arguably, we're still technically in spring, I don't think so, Tim. It is so damn hot. I just said, <laughs> in, in the Devil's Advocate segment, I'm going to be speaking to uh, Renee Anderson, co-owner of Art on You Studios, uh, for a new segment called Successful Satanic Women. And uh, it's sort of a feature of a, a, a woman of worth. And, uh, like, it was hot as shit in my house. We were all just drenched, sweating. It was horrible. There is no spring. Not in my house, man. It is terrible. And the worst part is, like, we have this swamp cooler, which I haven't hooked up yet. But even when we do, it's just, like, muggy and hot, which is horrible. We were going to be going in for uh, air conditioning, like central air, but my transmission in my car took a shit on me, and so I had to replace it, and so that means we cannot afford the AC now, because of the damn transmission. Ah! It's a nightmare, man. Bills suck. Uh, anyway, let's uh, let me let me give you a rundown of the show. So, like I already mentioned, in the Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be bringing. It's sort of a new segment, in theory, though. One could argue I've I've already started it um, with uh, Heather Melendez and Krampus skateboards, but I I wanted to speak to women of substance, strong women, women of worth, women who uh, can stand up for themselves, who are successful in business, and I wanted to feature them in my podcast. Um, and though, like I already mentioned, I, I've, I've talked to a, a handful of really amazing women, this is going to be the beginning of that sort of segment, officially. And I'm going to be bringing Renee Anderson, of uh, again, co-owner of Art on You Studios. I've, I've known Renee, you know, actually, I I think it's been like, I don't know, maybe a couple of years, maybe since, since I've started doing this podcast, which is amazing that I've known her that long. We have, you know, I mean, we've had a handful of interactions. What I, what I know about Renee, um, obviously after this interview, I, I know a lot more about her, but she was, she was a woman of strength. I don't mean like, like physical strength, though I'm sure she could hold her own. I, I mean emotional strength. You, there's some women that you just look at and you know that they they have power within them. Now, now 
you're always going to run across this with satanic witches. Hands down, you cannot be a satanic witch unless you are powerful. Uh, Renee is one of these women. Um, she's she's powerful. She's she's done something that um, start her own business and successfully run it. That I think is a little more rare nowadays. Um, and, and maybe just in general, it, it's a rare thing to do. So many startups and small businesses come and go. Art on You Studios, thanks to her and, and Storm's work, Warlock Storm's work, has, uh, you know, it's, it's spoken for itself because of their success. So I really wanted to get down into the nitty gritty and know a little bit more about her as a woman, as a satanic witch, um, you know, just you know, as, as, as a practicing Satanist. Um, I, I really wanted to sort of drill down into that. And uh, I think I think you're going to really dig the interview. I, I, had a, I had a really good time. It was very... Um, it, was, it was an easy conversation. And i got to be honest, I've been doing this for a, a few years here. Not every interview is easy. <laughs> Sometimes you have to fight for the interview. Like, it's it's weird. It, and you run into this just talking to people. But some people are really easy to talk to and they want to, you know, they want to give information. Some people, you have to, like, stab them in the face and pull it out of their eye sockets. Like, that's how freaking hard it is to get information out of them. And it's weird, especially when you have a podcast where it's, <laughs> like... <laughs> Presumably, you wouldn't be agreeing to come on unless you're willing to speak, but then some people are just so just tight with their tongue. Oh, it's a nightmare. Anyway, uh, Renee was not that at all, and you're going to be able to find out for yourself here just shortly. Uh, she, was, she was a lot of fun to talk to, and it was a great interview. And I love... Okay, selfishly, here. <laughs> I love women. So I love featuring strong women. I love speaking to women of worth, women of substance. It's just, yeah, yeah it's a thing. I, you know, I, I enjoy being around them. I enjoy their essence. Uh, she's one of them, and it's, it's good stuff. All right, before a storm comes and kicks my ass for talking too much shit about his wife, uh, in the Infernal Informant, I got two great articles, Military Chiefs to Face Tough Sexual Assault Questions and Cultures of Magic and Healing. Hmm, looking forward to that. And the creature feature... <laughs> I love this guy. Michael Anthony, comedian, writer, uh, artist. Uh, he uh, recently put out a video called Pun Hell Episode 1. I always love that, like, Episode 1. You know more are coming, but there's still a lot of Episodes 1 that are just standalone episodes because they just, like, lost <laughs> the momentum to do more. Uh, anyway, throughout this conversation, you're going to realize that Michael Anthony has a lot more to give and hopefully I can give you it on nine cents uh, anyway I talked to him and we are going to listen to Pun Hell episode one which is actually a YouTube video uh, but I'm going to give you the audio for it it's it's it's, <laughs> it's a bunch of puns it's called Pun Hell what do you expect uh, but it's it's a lot of fun if you enjoy the pun the turn of phrase the crafting of a clever line Michael Anthony does it in spades, talented young man. I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting him before, and I hope to have the pleasure of meeting him again. But until then, we get to enjoy his voice and craft. 
So look forward to that in the creature feature in the tail end. Before we start, there are a couple things I wanted to speak to as if I haven't been yakking on enough. Yakking? Yammering? Yakking? That doesn't sound right. It's like I'm puking long enough. Well, anyway, it's uh, coming up on Radio Free Satan's 13th anniversary. Yeah, the big one three. Woo! Preteen. Go Radio Free Satan. We're going to be getting her a training bra. She's going to be speaking awkwardly to boys. Uh, her dad's going to be like pulling out the shotgun whenever a boy comes over. It's going to be awesome. 13. Whenever I think of 13, obviously, <laughs> the age, or else I wouldn't have gone off that rant. I always think of Freaky Friday. Isn't that weird? Not the remake, the shitty remake. I'm not talking the original. Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah. That came out. Oh, gosh. I was right around that age. Okay, I was younger. But still, I had a thing for her awkward, humorous performance. Jodie Foster. Good girl. Wait. Okay, we're talking about Radio Free Satan here. 13 years of Radio Free Satan. That's amazing talk radio. That's amazing music. And it has gone through many DJs. I don't know an exact number. I know it's a lot. Now, when I first started this podcast, I and joined uh, the Radio Free Satan Network, of which I'm very happy to be a part of, I spoke to the majority of the DJs that are currently hosting shows on the network. Um, I have shelled, promoted the network so that it can continue going year after year, paying the bills. <laughs> Not very successfully, but I try. <laughs> I try. And um, I know a lot of you, probably the majority of you who listen to this, discovered Nine Cents from Radio Free Satan. And so I think it's important to uh, donate a little bit of Skrilla to something that brings you some amazing shows <laughs> like mine. <laughs> so fucking self-serving. Um, but realistically, I mean, there's bills to be paid. Radio Free Satan is 13 years in the making, <laughs> even though it's made. Oh, okay, I'm a little transparency here. I've had a couple of beers <laughs> from all. I've done two interviews today already, and I'm a little loopy. Plus, it was hot as shit, so that may account for it as well. Um, look, the DJs, the current DJs, are planning a anniversary special for Radio Free Satan. So, pay attention to social networks. I believe it's coming up here. Let me look at my calendar on the 16th. And it's going to be broadcast. So I believe it'll be video. Uh, the majority of the current DJs on Radio Free Satan will be a part of it. And we may get, we may be lucky, and we may get some past DJs to uh, do a little cameo on this. And essentially what it's going to be is a celebration of 13 years. We're all going to be waxing about the history of Radio Free Satan, what it was like back in the day, how it began, maybe uh, maybe a little bit about those past shows and, and uh, uh, where people have moved forward um, since 
having uh, produced shows on uh, the Radio Free Satan network and what Radio Free Satan means to them as a DJ. It's, I mean, you're all listening to this. You've all experienced the, the fantastic content, uh, the really worthwhile voices of Radio Free Satan for a number of years. And it's nice to hear the DJs, those who have put in the significant amount of time, money, effort into producing shows on this network who really make this network what it is it'll be nice to hear from them and especially in a collective format you know you're used to getting us all every once in a while there's a crossover not very often not as often as i would like i would love to sort of crash into someone else's podcast from time to time but it's always nice getting that sort of back and forth between the djs we have some really fantastic individuals that are a part of the network and I hope you tune in for that. And of course, more details are to come. But again, like I mentioned, it will be June 16th, probably. And I don't know specifically what time as of yet, but stay tuned. And Lucifest, if you are in Utah, <laughs> if you are one of the three people who live in Utah <laughs> that listen to this program, <laughs> no, I know there's a lot more news than that, but um, there's a two day fest that are that that is coming up here and uh, I'm, I'm a sponsor that's right so check out skinned elbow.net s-k-i-n-n-e-d-e-l-b-o-w.net skinned elbow.net and check out the details for lucifest lucifest <laughs> june 7th and 8th in salt lake city uh, a little bit of a problem because it sort of mirrors the Highland Games, which I go to every single year, and because of my Scottish ancestry, I just am compelled to go to. So I'm going to be checking out on June 7th, and then I'll do the Highland Games on the 8th. But uh, yeah, look forward to that, man. It's going to be a lot of local and uh, regional metal bands, uh, death and thrash and hardcore, and it's just going to be a lot of really great... um, non-commercial bands which in my opinion means actual passion actual care for the music and the message so um, I believe one day passes under 20 bucks for like I don't know five to seven bands two days and you're looking at damn near 14 to 20 bands is only that can't be right (laughs) <laughs> okay, one day passes like 10 bucks. Uh, two day passes like 16 bucks. So it's like, it's a, you cannot beat that. So if you are in Salt Lake, check out Lucifest this coming weekend, June 7th and 8th. And, uh, you know, not only support musicians, which, you know, is always important. Uh, they're Satanists, which, you know, if, if it's a project you appreciate, you know, it's always nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, get out there and uh, be a part of Lucifest in Mormon country. What kind of a statement is that, huh? I'm looking forward to it myself. All right, so I, I think that's all I wanted to talk about before we start the show. So let me stop yammering. I can I cannot get. I'm sorry. I, I gotta jump on one more thing. It's just been so fucking hot. It's killing me. The more, uh, the more I homebrew, the more I realize I don't homebrew. I don't homebrew 
the right beers for the time. You know, you're looking at like a four to six week window after you've brewed it and siphoned it and filtered it to be able to drink the beer. So it, it's hard to look ahead when you're a passionate brewer and you're doing it all the time to what you're going to want to drink when temperature and season come around. So right now I'm sitting on a Belgian double, which is a thick, uh, sort of heavy, high alcoholic content beer, not refreshing or light by any means. It's just strong. It's sort of the, the type of beer to prove you're a man that you would drink. <laughs> I'm sitting on that that's, that's drinkable right now. And I have a few IPAs that are left over and I got some stouts that are still left over. I got some porter. So it's all heavy stuff. Not the type of beer you want to be drinking when it's hot as hell outside in the middle of, or, or the beginning of summer in the, in, in the middle slash end of spring where the sun is beating down on you. You've been working on the yard for two and a half hours in the sun and y your eyes are stinging from sunblock or uh, thorns from the damn rose bushes that no matter how many times you plant that damn trellis in the ground it keeps uprooting itself because the damn rose bush has a mind of its own and I want to break free I want to reach around the house but you can't have a reach around the house because then your kids won't be able to take their bikes out of the doggone gate maybe I went a little too in depth on that <laughs> I'm, I'm having I'm in war I am in a battle world war with a rose bush right now it is so beautiful and I absolutely adore it and I just want to attach a goddamn trellis to it so that I can kind of keep it contained. And it's just wild, shaking all around. It's it's hard to contain this wild rosebush. It's it's a bit of a nightmare. Maybe um maybe the, maybe I shouldn't be talking about it so much. Uh, anyway, let's go ahead and start the show. <laughs> Have me stop fucking sound like a dumbass. You are your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And you are the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm an active member in the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. all right, I'm going to start a new, I don't know if you want to call it segment, but it's going to be a special that I'm going to be featuring in the Devil's Advocate segment here. Successful Satanic Women. Now, this is something that I've sort of been tossing around in my head for a little while. As far as... Uh, voices in Satanism, we're kind of lousy with guys. Like, we have tons and tons of guys that are willing to speak out about Satanism and how it affects their lives and their successes and failures in Satanism. And I don't personally think that there's as many women speaking out as there could be. Now, there's a lot of reasons why there may or may not be more, but I did want to start this little segment here because I think uh, for the women who are willing it would be nice for uh, everyone to know that they have as strong a presence, if not greater, than the men who are probably just more vocal. 
in Satanism, the, the greater conversation of Satanism. So I'm being joined today by Renee Anderson from Art on You Studios. Now, you've heard me speaking to her husband uh, many, many times, and you haven't heard much from Renee herself, so I'm very, very excited she agreed to meet with me. We're going to be talking a little bit about her, a little bit about the business, Art on You Studios, and a little bit about uh, her success and, and what has contributed to it as a Satanist. So, Renee, thank you for joining me. How are you? Thanks for having me, Adam. I'm great. How are you? Very, very good. So, thank you for joining me. And as with every conversation I have on this show, I do like to get to know and really let the audience get to know, because we've known each other for a little bit here, a little bit about you. So, if you could, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I am a mother to three daughters, ages 15, almost 19, and 24. Wow. I have a brand new, well, I call her brand new, grandbaby. She just turned a year old last weekend. Wow. <laughs> she keeps us real busy. Um, have a couple of cats at home that I adore. I co-own Art on You Studios with my husband. And Irish dance rules our lives, pretty much. <laughs> wow, that's, how does it rule your life? Well, we're busy. We're busy with it. We dan we're at dance almost every day. So is it, is it your daughter's dancing? My daughters and I. I also take a class. Really, I didn't know that. Yes, I do. I do. Wow! How come I haven't seen uh, that video? I, no one should see that video. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I. I have to say, I, I actually really respect Irish dancing. I'm Scottish ancestry, and so I've always sort of tied into the the whole Celtic and uh, clan uh, symbology, and and just. You know, that, that connection with the ancestry, I've always appreciated it. And I think there are a few things as sexy as a, as a Irish <laughs> dancing woman. That's pretty badass. I was, I mean, quickly out of context here. Um, I was at, uh, I was in college in Arizona and I went to an Irish pub to uh, meet a potential client. And there was this, uh, young Irish woman. I have no idea who or what she was. We never met before. I assume she's Irish because she ran up and just, like, uh, there's a, a live band playing some uh, Celtic music, sort of wor Celtic world music, and she just got up there and started, like, like right in front of me, as if it was, like, some weird mating ritual amongst <laughs> animals or something. She just started, like, dancing right in front of me. It's, just, it's, it's a huge turn-on, but obscure, too. It was, like, one of those just weird moments in time that you recognize, so... That's my connection with Irish dancing. So, well, that's a great that's a great connection. <laughs> One of the better ones you can have. Not not the. I don't know. Is is the Irish dancing circuit as competitive as maybe like pageantry and stuff between the it's girls? It's far more competitive. Really, I would say as a whole, the Irish dance community, we all really look after one another. We all cheer each other on. You know, we're all friends. All the kids are great friends. But there is but. there there is some serious competition out there. Wow. <laughs> Cut throats. It can be. Even with the ladies. Are there a lot of guys in Irish dancing? There's a fair amount. More really? Than, more than you would... A lot of straight guys? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Not as many. Maybe maybe half. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't mean anything bad. I'm just, you know, guys dancing. I, I know there's straight guys that dance. I always just wonder, you know, how many <laughs> are really straight. Um, now there's anything wrong with that. I <laughs> think... <laughs> <laughs> the culture. Uh, okay, so um, when you were a young woman, getting back to the interview, <laughs> less about Irish dance. Uh, who? Uh, what was your? What was your uh, sort of uh, your heroes you looked up to? Who? Who inspired you as a young woman? As a young woman, I would say uh, 
early 20s, it would it would be my mom. My really? Mo- my mom is one of the strongest women I know. She Whoa. was a single mom from the time that I was three years old. It was my sister, myself, and my mom, and that's what I remember from day one. She did everything that she had to do to make sure that, she, that we were provided for. Uh, she never put up with anything from anybody. My mom had always told us that we could be anybody that we wanted to be, that we never had to, no offense, depend on any man to take care of us. Yeah. And I think that as far as, you know, being a successful woman today, she, she is the one that instilled the most in me. That's great. That's, do you think, uh, and I don't want to get too personal, um, but you didn't mention that your father was around? No. So do you think that because she was forced into both parenting roles, uh, meaning uh, the caregiver and the disciplinarian, mm-hmm. that 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 maybe amplified it a little bit? Or do you think that had anything to do with the way she, you know, approached you as children and, and raising? It could be. Uh, he, My dad left when I was three. Um, he passed away, oh, mid tw- my mid-twenties, and there was never any contact. Um, she just, I think my mom just always did what she felt like she had to do. That's great. And that's, I mean, if you can ever sum up a successful life in any way that's sort of at the core rather than and and maybe this goes to say you know there's there's sort of two overarching themes in life that as i see it i know there's you know many more uh there's the individual who uh blames the world around them for what's happening and complains and tries to suck dry the community they live in and then there's sort of the person that says well shit happens and i still have to move on and I don't know if, if unfortunately is the right word, but unfortunately, the majority of women, uh, certainly in my young generation and uh, going back, have had to take that, are forced into that role alone, because for the majority, men refuse to be responsible as they should in right. many cases. So right. um, it's always nice to hear that a mother, you know, I, and you I never really know, you know, what, what type of answers I'm going to get. Sometimes, you know, maybe Lucille Ball or, you know, something <laughs> like you never know what people are going to say. And it's refreshing that it, it stays with the family with you uh, as far as inspiration. It's, uh, that's good because I guess I would imagine you're going to be carrying that through to your daughters as well, that independent spirit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we've always tried to instill in our children. We always tell them, you know... Um, don't cut your life, your life short. You can do whatever it is that you want to do with your life. Um, don't take no for an answer. Be responsible for yourself, for your actions, for everything that goes on around you. You need to make sure that if your life is not the way you want it, you make it the way you want it. Nice. So when you were a, when you were a young woman, did you, what, what did you see your adult life being like? I mean, what did you see yourself doing as an adult? Other than staying up late and eating made cookies and ice cream and shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't really know that I ever that I ever saw my life being anything specific. Um, early on with my with my first marriage, it was it was not a good marriage. I was never really allowed to be a free thinker. Um, I was in, I guess, what you would call an abusive relationship, Jeez. and so I wasted thirteen years on that. And once I got out was when I started having dreams and aspirations and 
realizing that there is life outside of somebody else. Wow. Um, if you would indulge me, what was it, what was that sort of turning point when you realized this is over? Like, I cannot be under this oppressive man anymore. I cannot, you know, I can't be here anymore. I think that it got to a point where I felt like, you know, I knew what kind of person I was and I knew, you know, as I got older, when we got married, I was almost 17. It was a month before I turned 17. So I was really, really young. And I guess I went from, you know, being in my mom's house to being in this other house. And I felt like I went from basically one parent to another. And I, as I got older and I became to have ideas of my own and feelings of my own and um, maybe discover the satanic side of myself that was always there, but I just was never really allowed to embrace, I guess. I had thought, you know, it, it got to be really, really bad at one point where it became physical and all my freedom was stripped from me and I had thought, you know, I didn't have any sort of education. I had no background in anything besides being a mom. And I was always told that I could never make it without him. And so I had thought, well, if I'm going to be poor, then I might as well be poor and happy. Yeah, happy and healthy. That's uh, th- that's encouraging. It's, it's sort of this weird dichotomy that we live in. We... Uh, not many people realize that the women's uh, rights movement is still really young in our culture. I mean, and around the world, I constantly, I like, anytime I get an email, let's sort of transparency here, anytime I get an email from Africa, from listeners, um, you guys are very chauvinist. I always get this sort of, you make it sound like men should be slaves sort of response from people. <laughs> and it's weird, and, because they live in a completely different culture where women aren't full human beings. And so, in our culture, even that notion is so new, we're sort of, and I I see this a lot, especially with men who are raised by other men, we're always sort of taught that it is our responsibility for the health and happiness of the woman, and if they are not doing what we want them to do, we have to be the disciplinarian. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate, and I... You know, it's, it's one of those things where, as as any man in a relationship, you quickly learn that that's not true. But before you get to that relationship, well, most people don't know. Um, before you get to that relationship, it's it's a hurdle that you have to fight through. It's sort of that machismo essence of manliness versus actually just being a decent human being to another decent human being and, and realizing that a relationship isn't about control. It isn't about, you know, it, it's just this idea of sharing time together and, and really cherishing each other. Right. It's nice that you did find that. Um, but you did mention Satanism, and because this is nine cents, I want to mm-hmm. kind of jump on that if I can. How did you even first discover Satanism? I think I always knew uh, within myself, you know, what kind of person I was and when I was younger, I, I almost felt a little guilty about it because, you know, it's every, everybody is raised with do unto others as you want them, you know, as, as you want them to do unto you. And, you know, I just think in my mind, I had always thought that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. If they're mean to me, why would I be nice to them back? That doesn't make any sense to me as a kid. And I always thought maybe there's something wrong with me, you know? But from the time that that I was, you know, late elementary school, that's how I remember feeling. 
and I, and I felt wrong about it. And it wasn't until I met Aaron that, you know, he actually had discovered it and had presented it to me. And I wasn't sure if maybe we were both just a couple of weirdos that, (laughs) you know, felt the same way. And maybe we were both just wrong in the way that we were thinking and feeling. But then when he presented it to me, I thought, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. This is what, you know, defines everything that I believe in. And pretty much was the, the way that I was raised, too. And I think there's a little bit of Satanist in my mom. And although she may not admit it, yeah. I believe it to be true. Yeah. Nice. Do you think, because those ideas of, of turning the other cheek and, uh, you know, being nice to someone, even if they're uh, very uh, aggressive to you, do you think it's natural for some people to sort of think that's right? Or do you think it's just drilled into them? Because, obviously, we're Satanists, and so it, it's hard to say, well, everyone thinks that way, when really they don't. But do you, do you think it's that far removed from everyone else? I think it's absolutely the way that they're raised. Yeah. And I don't want to single out any sort of, you know, religion when, right. I, when I speak, but... You know, yeah. <laughs> Living in Salt Lake, how do you not? Yeah. yeah. But you know, when when you're surrounded by them and you're you're in a classroom full of them and they're saying that oh, there's something wrong with you because you're not, you know, it's it's not the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, and you start you hear that enough from your peers, and you start to think, oh my God, maybe I was raised wrong. Maybe maybe there is something really wrong with me, but. Now, as an adult, I look at them and say, man, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, Okay, so when did you decide to join the Church of Satan? Well, I think we did a fair amount of research. Um, We felt like we were, you know, living living the principles anyway. And uh, it was was around Halloween 2006 that we, um, it was around that time that we sent off for our red cards. Yeah. What was it that, I guess pushed you into into joining what was it that you know was the deciding factor for you the way that we felt it was you know within us and we we had talked to each other and we you know as a kid my that another thing that my mom had always instilled in me was if you're going to do something you do it you do it right you do it 100 percent, and you don't ever look back and i feel like you get in you get out of it what you put into it and if you're going to do it do it jump in with both feet if it's something that you truly believe in and, you know, it, it is the way that you live, then do it. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a, a, a huge majority of people who have never joined the Church of Satan but still identify as a Satanist. And so I always always find it interesting, you know, the answers I get for that decision. Um, and it's always pretty much the same thing. Um so that's that's nice. Hey, I I just I don't I guess I don't ever want to be labeled as poser. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> it is, and, and do you think that that's? I mean, do you think that's a fair statement to sort of say about people who didn't, who haven't joined as of yet, or or just have no interest in joining? I think the majority of uh, the people that don't join, maybe they're afraid of the stigma. Maybe they're afraid of the label. Maybe they're afraid. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what people will say. I don't know. I don't know why they don't do it. Well, let's talk a little bit about your business here. Um, what is your role at Art? Well, first of all, I mean, there may be a couple of people who haven't heard uh, your husband and I speak. So what is Art on You Studios? 
Art on You Studios is a tattoo and piercing shop out in Magna, Utah, and we also have um, we also have variety of T-shirts and quote unquote needful things. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, I guess the largest portion of your business is going to be tattooing. Absolutely. So, are you a tattoo artist? I am not. What is your role at Art on You Studios? I am co-owner, whip cracker. <laughs> I used to label myself as shop bitch. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I would clean. I would answer the phones. I would greet customers that would come in. Uh, since the grandbaby has been born, my role has changed quite a bit. I am now home with her. My daughter's, oh, really? My daughter's a single mom uh, with absolutely no support or help from the ex. And so I babysit her while she works. Uh, I do still handle the finances. Um, we do talk before anybody is hired or let go. Um, any major decision, uh, he runs by me before anything is done. Okay, so I, I mean, I, I kind of have a, a number of sort of follow-up questions about this, but did you have exposure to the tattooing world before you decided to start Art On You? Yes, yes, I was a collector. My husband was a manager for a collector. Uh, a collector. That's a that's a tattoo call. collector. Yes, tattoo yeah, okay. collector. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my husband was a manager at a at the shop that he was worked at previously for about five years, and I would go in there on occasion and you know answer the phones, help clean up, talk to customers, do whatever. Yeah. So you know it, it wasn't anything new to me. Nice. I guess I guess the next question would be, I mean, have you ever run a business before? No, I I was an eBay power seller for several years, but it wasn't, I didn't have a brick and mortar location. What was, if you don't mind me asking, what was your, what, what was the trade? What was your, what were you, what were you selling? I was selling um, reconstructed men's t-shirts, band and uh, movie t-shirts. Oh. I would take them and, and reconstruct them, cut them, make them fit women. Oh, wow. We, we, we don't have anything like that for women. Really? You, you guys have all the cool stuff. I had no idea. Yeah. It's really hard to find band and movie t-shirts for women. Really? It is. It is. Believe it or not. <laughs> I know. Oh, you learn something new every day. So I, so I used to cut them down into halter tops off the shoulders. They would fit and flatter women. They loved them. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, I mean... I'm sure there there are a number of, of, of pressures that are involved with something like that, but this is a brick and mortar store you guys have here, and and, and a successful one at that. So, was it scary going into this, thinking, oh well, you know, you've never had a brick and mortar store before? It was one of the most frightening things I've ever done. It was. We had a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah. <laughs> We've never, you know, as far as licensing and the county yeah. and Magna's really, it's really difficult to get into Magna for anything. Wow. You, have, you have to go in front of the county and they have to approve it. And we had this huge business loan, thanks to my mom. And, you know, I mean, we had everything set up, every, all ducks in a row. And the day before we opened, we had to go in front of the county. It could have, it could have been devastating. They could have refused us. Wow. But my husband... Speaks well and <laughs> <laughs> tap danced. <laughs> tap danced a little. <laughs> was there ever a point where you really didn't think it would ever work out during that process of, of appealing um, to them for the necessary permits and licensing and the loan application and, and actually starting up? 
I think that, you know, aside from the fear, I, I was pretty confident that everything would work out. You know, we had, there were a couple of, um, there were a couple of people that were on the board that we went in front of that were on our side from the beginning that, you know, one of the guys, he has a business down the street and he came in and talked to us on several occasions while we were working on the building and he knew what kind of people we were, you know, and yeah. we were family oriented. So we, we were pretty confident that it was going to be okay. How was, how was the startup? So, so how was business when you first opened? Pretty scarce. <laughs> really? So what did you do to uh, overcome that? Well, Aaron is a master... Uh, promoter? Promoter. Promo marketing. Yeah, he's a marketing maniac. He really is. And thanks to him and all of his uh, wonderful flyers and... We did ads on one of the local radio stations every Sunday. There were numerous things that we did to promote ourselves, to, to keep people coming in. Besides, you know, the ones that we already had as clients, uh, you know, good word of mouth spreads fast. Nice. What was it that made you want to open your own store versus just working in an established shop? I think that, uh, you know, we kind of had our own vision and we're, we're the Halloween people. Right? Yeah. Who doesn't like Halloween? You know, Salt Lake Valley needs a Halloween tattoo shop. So, you know, it's the whole experience. It's you know, it's it's just when from the second they walk in the door, you know, they're greeted with a bag of popcorn. There's always a horror movie playing in the lobby. You know, every one of our artists are unbelievable. They're great with their clients. They're we just we have a wonderful staff. That's great. I, I got to say. The differentiating factor that sets your business apart from like businesses is often overlooked, I think. So when someone's opening up a tattoo parlor or a tattoo studio and, uh, you know, for the most part, they're scattered all around the valley, but you don't know the difference between one or the other, why you should go to one over the other. And a lot of times people um, try to do it because of... a particular artist or something mm -hmm. like that, but if you're new and you, you don't have that sort of reputation as of yet, that differentiating factor is imperative in order to set yourself apart. And so it's nice to see that you guys embrace that. And it's, it's, it's a huge boon with marketing. Um, it goes to show that you guys knew what you were doing, which is always nice to <laughs> looking before you leap, so to speak. Right. And we, you know, we have, we have people that come in for the first time and they say this atmosphere is just unbelievable. Yeah. It's totally different from any other shop that they've been in. And, you know, we've had people say that it's real homey, Yeah, you know, and I think that that's what, that's what'll make a first timer comfortable. So how long has the studio been open? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Yeah. And I know it can't be one single thing. What do you attribute your success to? Just never giving up. Yeah. Just never giving up, always pushing forward. You're always going to have setbacks. You're always going to have letdowns. You're always going to have people that, you know, just get under your skin, whether it's, you know, another shop that you might have heard had said or done something yeah. or, you know, a client that for whatever reason you just can't make happy or a former artist. It, it can be any number of things, but just always pushing forward and always saying, this is, this is why we're here. This is our dream. This is what we were meant to do. And that's what we're doing. Nice. And I have actually heard from a, a number of people, um, artists and um, collectors, the tattoo 
artists are very cagey anyway. So it, it, was it challenging getting your core group of artists together? Yes. <laughs> yes. I think that was probably the most frustrating aspect of, of opening the shop. It's not, you can't, it's not like a McDonald's where, oh, you have one asshole employee and you can get rid of them and hire the next 16-year-old that's on the list. It's not like that. Yeah. It's a it's a very specialized industry. And good artists that are good with the clients and responsible, they're hard to find. Well, really hard to find. Well, I know you have a, a really good crew down there right now. We do. Um Okay, well, let me let me ask you a little bit. Let's go back to the, the feminine side of this. Do you think, and maybe there's not, but do you think that there was any challenges for you uh, because you're a woman or challenges as a woman working in a tattoo studio or as a businesswoman? I think probably the only challenge would be that uh, initially... Some of the artists, I don't feel like they really respected me as co-owner. I think that they felt like, you know, if I'm telling them what to do, I'm a bitch. If Aaron's telling them what to do, yes, sir, I'm on it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It just seemed to be a lack of respect, and yeah. it was something, but, you know, it... How do you, how do you deal with that? You know, I think, I think for me, I just had kind of kept pushing on and just kept saying, you know, this, this is how it's going to be. And I had to let them know that, you know, I don't care if I'm a woman, I am still your boss. Is it, and, uh, and this sounds really shitty, but is it difficult to step up to, um, other artists when, when you're not an artist, when your co-owner is, is there ever any problem with that? I haven't really had a problem with it. I, you know, it's never been anything that's revolved around um, the artistic skills. It's always been the business aspect, yeah. and it's it's always been, you know, um, them being responsible, them being on time for their appointments, them being prepared when they get there. And it's not it's not even coming from me as an owner. It's coming from me as a collector myself and yeah. saying, listen, you know, when I go in for an appointment, I don't want my artist showing up late and then having to take a half hour and you know prepare the the piece and just yeah. have respect for if you're not going to have respect for me have respect for your client it's it's stunning that that's a conversation that has to be had you know i mean it seems as like adults, just you, yeah as adults you would thing. think that it's something that they would just know so so you think or do you think that it's because you were a woman or because you were um the co-owner and not the artist side of it that they were I guess, just had a little more discord with you? I think that it's a combination of being a woman and an owner. I think they felt like, you know, you're not an artist, so you don't understand. Well, I, I may not be an artist, but my husband shows up on time every day and he's prepared. Yeah. There's no reason in the world why you can't be. That's great. Was it ever challenging for you as a mother to balance... Uh, co-owner of the business, uh, which is really time-consuming, and raising children, which is incredibly time-consuming. Yes, it was It was very, very challenging. My kids were used to me doing eBay full-time. I was always home. I was at their beck and call. I could drive them wherever they needed to go. I could do whatever with them whenever. And once it went from that, initially we were open seven days a week. 
And I went from that to being at the shop seven days a week, and my kids were very unhappy for a while. <laughs> I had to make a compromise, and a lot of times I would bring, you know, the youngest one with me, and we would just, you know, do whatever we had to do while we were at the shop, or, you know, I would, there are a lot of times I would have to leave and, you know, either pick them up from school, drive them to dance, come back, whatever. It's, it's really difficult trying to balance all of it. No, I can I can absolutely imagine though I have no firsthand knowledge of, of having to do with it. It's again one of these weird stereotypical things. Like um, when my wife and I had our first child, my son, I was in Germany in, in the military, and so I was gone training and preparing for you know ultimate war, and she was home dealing with a brand newborn in a foreign country, and so it's. Unfortunately, a lot of the time it just falls on the women. And then you see this huge cultural norm of single mothers throughout the last maybe four generations um, in our American society. And you really have, I mean, at least as, as guys, you really have to tip your cap at the, the strength and resolve that a, a woman can really uh, muster in, in the face of seeming pure despair at times. Right. Um, and it is also impressive that you can balance an active business with more than one child. Yeah. You know, that, that seems to be a really tough thing. And, and I, I believe that it's something that women struggle with continually, even to today. And do you have any advice for, for mothers who are in that situation? I would just say, you know, do the best you can do. You know, I mean, they're, they're every single day I go to bed and I have a list of things that just didn't get done. Yeah. And I can't, I can't worry myself about it. There, there's always another day. Do you ever find yourself looking at the choice? Can I have a happy home life or can I have a successful business? You can absolutely have both. Nice. Absolutely. I, for my, personally, we involved our children a lot. Uh, they were there during the whole renovation process before we moved in and opened up. My kids, my kids are, you know, they, they play a pretty active role in the shop. You know, every year when we do our philanthropy project, they're there, they're helping. They know how to, they know how to do it. My kids all know how to tear down and set up for somebody. <laughs> <laughs> they all know how to answer the phones, talk to clients. Do you see, uh, art on you evolving in any other way than its current state? I'm hoping that uh, with with the artists that we have now, that um, it'll evolve into a lot more than just tattooing. Yeah. They're all very talented artists. I think that, you know, they could all be very successful at not just tattooing, but, you know, they could put out books of Flash. They could have their own lines of t-shirts. There's all kinds of stuff that, that these artists can do. And it's, you know, it's beneficial to the shop itself, but it's more beneficial to them. Yeah. And is that something that you you encourage with the artists and you, you sort of introduce to them if they haven't thought of it before? So Absolutely. Sort of mentoring Absolutely. them in that business yes. savvy aspect of it. That's nice. Yes. Mer merchandise is really popular when, yeah. you know, for yeah. tattoo shops. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. I do have one last thing I wanted to ask you about. And, I mean, there's going to be women and, and even men out there who are going to see you as a role model because of the success that you've had, because of, of the, the challenges that you've faced and overcome. 
and uh, the difficulty that you've really shined throughout your whole life. Um, what satanic principles do you think aided in that, if at all? I, I would say all of them, really. I would say all of them, and I would say the main one that I keep going back to is responsibility to the responsible. Yeah. If you want something, never give up. Just keep pushing forward and go for it. It might take a little longer than you had anticipated or wanted it to, but keep after it. Well, I think that's a, a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me, Renee. Thanks for having me. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Psst. Hey, hey. Hey, come here. Psst. What? Huh? Me? Do I know you? Hey, you're religious, man, aren't you? No more than anyone else. Listen, listen, I got a secret. It's, it's been eating me up, and I got to share it with someone. Get the fuck out of here, kid. I don't know you. No, listen, man. It's about you. It's about your life. You're about to have what, what alcoholics refer to as your moment of clarity. What are you talking about? Are you okay, son? Sins are indisposable to every society organized on an ecclesiastical basis. They are only reliable weapons of power. The priest lives upon sins. It's, it's necessary to him that there be sinning. Who the fuck are you, kid? I'm your infernal informant. Ah, you see what I mean? You see why I was excited? <laughs> that was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Alright, let's talk a little infernal. Okay, by the way, this is going to be a really long episode. <laughs> I've got two interviews to bring you, plus the regular infernal informant segment. Sit back, grab yourself a drink, relax, and enjoy an extra long nine cents. Alright, first article, Military Chiefs to Face Tough Sexual Assault Questions, and this was published on 2nd of June. Hey, that's the day. As top brass are summoned to Capitol Hill, they say they are committed to fixing a broken culture in the ranks. Military service chiefs, who will testify Tuesday about their plans to deal with the burgeoning crisis of sexual assault in the ranks, will face a group of female senators determined to change a culture they call demeaning to women. Senator Kristen Gilbrand, who has proposed one of the most sweeping overhauls to military justice system to deal with sex assault, made clear that only action, not pronouncements, will be acceptable. Enough is enough, Gilbrand, the New York Democrat who chairs the Armed Forces Committee Personnel Subcommittee, told USA Today in a statement, Words are not enough. It is time to act. Today's Senate Armed Services hearing will include a testimony from four service chiefs, all of whom responded to questions from USA Today about sexual assault. The urgency to act on the issue intensified last month after the Pentagon released a report showing a 35% jump in the estimated number of sexual abuse incidents in 2012 compared to 2010. I'm stunned that it's an increase. Later, you know, I, you would think that, I mean, just our culture <laughs> and uh, respect of women would have gone up, not down. A series of incidents in May has underlined the problem. The investigation of an alleged prostitution ring 
at Fort Hood. Holy shit. The secret videotaping of female cadets in showers at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. The investigation of three Naval Academy football players in, on charge of sexual assault. The arrest of an Air Force officer in charge of preventing sexual abuse for drunkenly groping a woman. And the Marine Corps and Secret Service investigating current and former Marines for lewd and threatening posts on social media sites. The Chiefs of the... Here's something I... Speaking to threatening posts on social media sites. When you sign up into service, you are handing over a lot of your... the majority of your um, human rights. You're handing them over to the government. That's what allows you to die for your country, to to fight until death without questioning. You hand over the rights that every other civilian has in order to defend those rights. It's, it's this weird idea, but it's an important one. And it drives me nuts when you see people joining the military and treating it as if they were still a civilian and it's just a 9 to 5. It is not a 9 to 5. It is not a nine to five. You have to work when everyone else is playing. You have to lay in the dirt in the rain when everyone else is in their comforter and a soft down bed. You have to eat shit rations when everyone else is going out to eat at restaurants. But there is a there's an authority that comes with that sacrifice. There is an honor that no one else is going to meet. No one else is even going to understand. It doesn't matter if they understand it or not. You understand it as a soldier. There is no more respective title than soldier. And we have so many pieces of shit faking it mailing it in, calling themselves soldiers, all the while denigrating their fellow soldiers, treating them like shit, like they're not even human beings. I mean, come on. There should be punishment, severe, if you, here's the, and I mean, we can talk about the human rights side of it. That doesn't even come into context for me. I'm, I'm more concerned with, because I'm a Satanist, the satanic side of it. And it is unheard of to sexually push yourself on someone else unless they are open to it. And yet... It happens all the time. And yet, our greater culture seems to be okay with it. Well, until recently, it seems. It took um, a film, a documentary about it to be aired at Sundance. And then suddenly, we see this rise, this 35% jump in sexual abuse incidents. And I can't help but think, is it really a 35% jump in sexual abuse cases? Or... Is it just 35% more people willing to speak about it? 
And what does that say about our armed forces? I mean, on one hand, these people are doing what no one else will do. Ultimate sacrifice and all. At what cost? At what emotional and, and long-lasting physical cost to their service women? I mean, it, it, it's something worth examining, I would think. Army Chiefs of Staff Raymond o <laughs> Raymond Onero. Incidents of sexual assaults and harassment violate the trust of our soldiers, which is the foundation of our army. These acts violate everything our army stands for and are contrary to our army values. Last week, in a message to our soldiers, I stated to, that combating sexual assault and harassment is our primary mission. Ugh. <laughs> There are so many primary missions in the military. I gotta, you know, okay. So, bit of transfer. I have a fucking mustache hair in my mouth and it's driving me nuts. Bit of transparency here. <laughs> As if you want to hear about my mustache hair. Uh, I served in Kentucky. I served in Germany. And at both uh, duty station assignments, we had these, gosh, what would they be called? I mean, realistically, they're just like speeches, uh, classes about sexual harassment and uh, proper behavior with, with military co-workers. And it was always a segmented thing where we would, there was behavior, just guys and guys, just hanging out. You do whatever you want. As soon as a woman came into the the scene, you were forced to behave differently. And I, I think that in and of itself is the problem, is that we are, we're segmenting out our society. We're saying that this behavior is okay for men and this behavior is okay for being around, men being around women. Why... I mean, when it comes to assault, I mean, there's no question, man or woman, it's, it's not right. When it comes to just behavior and language and, you know, just, just, just joking, I don't, I don't think there should be a difference. And, and I, think, I think segmenting it out, saying that this behavior is okay amongst men and this behavior is not okay amongst women is kind of part of the problem because we're creating contrasting standards of behavior. So let's say you're you're two guys bullshitting, just being guys, which is, you know, whatever. And then suddenly a woman comes into play. Well, is she okay with said guy behavior or not? I mean, if you know she's okay, then you start ranting with her that it's okay. And then another woman comes on the scene, on the stage, and she's not okay. So suddenly you have to stop being punchy, pally, jokey with this other woman because there's the new woman on the scene. And it becomes this really difficult situation. Why can't we, as adults, just be adults. Why can't we recognize inappropriate speech and actions for being inappropriate, regardless of present sex, and realize that no matter who you're with, they're lines. You just don't want to cross. I mean, it's just, just out of common courtesy. The, the basics 
of human respect is what I'm talking about. I mean, I think the army's going about it a completely back assword. That's right. Wait, um, and I'm not the only one. I mean, throughout my entire military career, though it only lasted five years off of uh, the contract I signed and my definite choice not to re-up, um, every other guy I ever had service with, and most women, did not like those courses um, and, and, and that idea that there was this sort of okay, not okay behavior between the sexes. Preached, taught behavior. Uh, anyway, let me get back to this. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral uh, Jonathan Greenert, sexual assault is a crime. It's a, uh, you know, I'm not going to read. This, this, these are just statements from every single branch's uh, man, uh, press man. And they're all saying the same thing. Gillibrand's bill, co-sponsored with 12 Democratic and Republican senators and a bipartisan quartet of House members, would remove cases of sexual assault from the defendant's chain of command, putting decisions in the hand of military judges and juries. Currently, the decision on bringing charges, the jury's composition, and whether a conviction or punishment can stand is controlled by high-ranking officers who is the defendant's superior. That commander receives advice from a military lawyer. Other lawmakers have announced proposals to trim command authority in such cases, but not eliminate it. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel says he agrees with removing commanders' ability to overturn convictions, but wants them to retain some discretion. See, and I don't understand how, how they can remove... Uh, I spent a significant amount of time doing my damnedest to get a soldier who should never have been a soldier in the first place out of the military because of his irrational and poor conduct. I tried for years to turn this soldier around and to teach him the proper way of behaving as a soldier to perform his soldierly duties. He refused. He should not have ever been a soldier, period. We fought tooth and nail to get this dude kicked out of the military. Because he deserved to be kicked out. We fought hard as shit. And what? A commander can just say, ah, let him go. I don't fucking think so. That's not the way it works. You can't just overturn a ruling in a hearing. I, I don't know why this is stating such. Because we tried. We tried hard. And it did not work. Now, maybe we didn't have the right connections. Maybe what, you know... Circumstances be what they are. Um, it's not so easy to do. So it's not like there's this rampant case of command company commanders overturning court martial decisions. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. The recent decisions of two Air Force three-star generals showed how the system works, or as say some like Representative Jackie Spear. California Democrat of the House Armed Services Committee has broken down. Those lieutenant generals threw out two jury convictions of sexual assault in one instance, concluding that the defendant could not possibly be guilty because he was a doting father and husband. Gillibrand called the current system clearly broken and says it prevents victims from coming forward. It is clear from taking are talking with victims that we must take this crisis head on and increase accountability with the system by removing the influence of chain of command in the prosecution of intolerable crimes, she said. Only then can the climate change and reporting of these crimes increase. I have a problem, fundamentally, 
with the military not policing the military. We start putting civil, civilian courts in charge of the military, and you lose that notion that the military is a separate entity. And it is. You are not a citizen anymore. You are a servant. You are a soldier. You are not a citizen. So you do not have the same rights as a citizen. I, and I don't, I'm not saying that to, to excuse assault, sexual or physical, because I don't. And I think it's absolutely wrong. But I don't want civilian courts taking on military matters. I mean, that, that politicizes things rather than deals with them. What we need are responsible human beings in positions of authority. And rather than focusing on um, uh, good old boy behaviors, which is the real means of progression in the military chain of command, we focus on behavior and accomplishment. If we can, if we can do that, then we don't need to worry about civilian authorities. We don't need to worry about um, the chain of command overturning convictions. Uh, I, it, it's just this crazy notion that, that civilians who have a completely different worldview are going to be justifying uh, crimes or perceived crimes in a military context. It, it's completely different. Completely. I mean, we have the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Civilians don't. So it's it's a whole different way of looking at things. And uh, I do not think it should be mixed. All right, so let's move to the next one. This is, oh, you know, I don't think I even actually said that was USA Today. Okay, so the next article, Al Jazeera. I love this news outlet. I know some irrational human beings say, ooh, Al Jazeera, it's a... Arabian newspaper. You're full of shit and uneducated and just fucking ignorant. So please learn yourself something new here. Al Jazeera is probably the most accurate reporting agency out there. No political ties. Um, along with The Guardian, which is a close second at this point. But I, uh, I take Al Jazeera number one. Can traditional healing and ancient mystical customs exist alongside modernity and Western medicine. This is posted the 26th of May. Um, let's see. Historically, traditional medicine has been frowned on by modern Western, Western medicine. Uh, while some swear by ancient practices, some cultural traditions have become increasingly dangerous. Already, more than 20 young men have died in South Africa after undergoing traditional Zosha circumcision ceremonies. This week, South to North discusses healing, traditional medicine, and ancient cultural customs with three guests. Nokulinda Mekizi, a traditional healer known in South Africa as Sangoma, who speaks about how she reconciles her work as a healer with her modern life. I can't explain how I became a Sangoma because I was brought up like this. I'm a young, middle-class, black South African, private school educated. My parents are both doctors. I come from privilege, and I am comfortable in the world, as I am comfortable in this world. Uh, that world versus this world. Where I throw bones, and I have to slaughter animals for people, sometimes. And I deal with ancestors. And this is what I do for a living. Dr. Vijay Mittal is well-known... Arvidic 
healer from the Himalayas, North India. In 03, he was invited to South Africa to share his knowledge on meditation and natural healing. He also involved in some research projects in medicinal plants and has his own practice in South Africa. Mittal explains that while modern medicine treats infections and other complex diseases are needed, Avier Deck medicine in largely preventative because of modern stresses that are making us ill. These days, people are getting sick because they are not sleeping well. They are stressed all the time. So unless we address that particular thing, we cannot reduce the dependency on medicine. Mayanzek Baza made a documentary for Al Jazeera, People and Power, called Diena Doda, I Am Man, it opens a window into the closed worlds of ritual circumcision for boys from the 10 million strong Zosha tribe, of which former South African President, uh, President Nelson Mandela is the most prominent member. Zosha, or Zosa, man himself, Baza, felt the need to stand up against the tradition that caused the death of many young boys every year. There have been over 20 deaths in South Africa this year alone, caused by infections and illness, and many others have to deal with genital injuries for the rest of their lives. The tradition is a transition to manhood, and to not go through it means one remains a boy in the eyes of the culture. The whole initiation is supposed to really transform a boy into man. So when you go into the bush, there are supposed to be men who are supposed to be mentors to you, to be responsible, to take good care of you. Once you leave there, there's a whole process where your elders come and talk to you about what it really means to be a man, explains Baza. Uh, weird that it sort of cuts off right there, but in fact it does. All right, so it's really the notion of magic versus modern-day medicine that I wanted to approach. And this, I mean, we're living in a time where, this is truly amazing in my opinion, we have, we have 3D printers that can, that can print heart valves. How amazing is that? You can you can print a part of the human anatomy and put it in and, and save someone's life with it. That's that's stunning. That's that is unbelievable. And at the exact same time, we have oh, we have like completely ancient uh, medicine. Uh, in order to heal you, we must slaughter this goat. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, what a time we are living in. Um, but, I mean, here's, it's sort of that juxtaposition of society, of, of cultures. Because we're living in a time where everyone has a cell phone. Even in Africa, people have cell phones. But they don't have culture. They don't, not the way we see it. They, they still believe in medicine men rather than traditional doctors. It's that idea that, you know, that very satanic idea that magic is truly just science yet to be discovered, classified. Um, and there's a lot of people who really are still trying to sell that snake oil. It's crazy and and you know we in this article specifically we sort of 
joke and, and, and take jabs at third world countries. But we even have that in our cultures. I mean, we have people reading horoscopes. <laughs> we, we have candle burners. This absurd notion that um, will alone, will alone, ritual alone can solve your problems. That's, that's a pretty irresponsible notion, and that no Satanist should be taking that stance. We celebrate ritual. We have traditional rituals that we adhere to, but we recognize them as such uh, intellectual decompression chambers. We, we suspend disbelief. We engage in them as a means of greater clarity and focus. And then we use action. That's the difference between satanic magic and this, this absurd medicine man bullshit that third world countries are adhering to. It's an amazing time, man. All right, let, let's... I've been ranting long enough, way uh, over my mark here. Let me uh, take a quick break. Got a couple things I want to play. And then on the other side, Michael Anthony, prepare for some laughs. Why start your mornings early when you can sleep in late and wake up later to a freshly brewed cup of Radio Free Satan? Radio Free Satan is infernally roasted with a complex taste to suit your indulgence. It's sinful. That's why it tastes great. So pour yourself another helping of this podcast and others at RadioFreeSatan.com. Seriousness is next to godliness. Faith is a virtue for the solemn and serious mind. Be God-fearing, and laugh not, for laughter is a tool of the devil. Remain pious and sanctimonious at all times. <laughs> laughter is an evil which, which, oh, the hell with it. Listen to The Devil's Mischief, a unique weekly podcast of most carnal comedy and netherworld novelty, hosted by your most irreverent reverend, Bill M., who serves up a new devilishly delightful mix of laughter each and every week on The Devil's Mischief. Tune in and indulge your funny bone today. Listen to The Devil's Mischief, available now at RadioFreeSatan.com. What's this show called? What do you mean, what is it called? You know, what's the name of the show? What, like the title? What, what's the title of the show? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, what's the big deal? What's the title of the show? Look, it should be good enough for you and for any of you other Generation Y's or X's or W's or Z's or, or, or whatever fancy letter you're, you're sitting on today to, to realize that it's not about what the title is. It's not about... When I was your kid, there's only one thing that we had growing up. When we wanted to watch a show, we just turned on the telly uh, in Saturday mornings, and you know what we got? Do you know? Do you have any idea that what we got? No, I have no idea. Why are you freaking out? Every single Saturday, and we didn't know what shows were, what what titles were, or or what 
we, we had no choices on what to watch. We were stuck with the creature feature, and so are you. Welcome to another creature feature. Today I'm being joined by Michael Anthony. I've been scouring the intertubes, <laughs> the interwebs, for a little bit, and I've run across him. And I had the absolute pleasure to uh, meet him, and uh, I believe shake his hand. <laughs> I don't know. It was a I wild think. night. <laughs> It's weird that it's weird that like we we've met each other in person, but we're actually having a discussion over the internet. Like, it was, yeah, that's weird. It was, just a, a, it was a lively lively gathering. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but it was a lot of fun. I was I was really happy to finally finally meet you and put a uh, uh, a human face to the online face or the online voice, uh, as it were. But I had you on because I saw this video that you posted called Pun Hell Episode 1, and I thought it was a lot of fun, and I was hoping uh, that you would be willing to um, sort of do a, a straight audio version of that here on the show, and then we can talk a little bit afterward. A little boy's third grade science fair project was about monsters under the bed which he debunked. <laughs> I don't know why a mustachioed villain would tie a damsel to the railroad tracks, but I assume that he has a locomotive. <laughs> An Italian leather worker told his wife that he was at his workshop making shoes, but she caught him making gloves with another woman. <laughs> oh, turkeys were invented to spread Nazi propaganda. That's why they always say, Goebbels, Goebbels. <laughs> I don't mean to pester you, said the pastor, but I hate plain pasta. Please pass the pesto. <laughs> One heretic said to another, I don't know why you didn't enjoy that black mass. It was a blast for me. <laughs> to the devoutly religious, atheists are a nameless, faithless bunch. <laughs> a hen threw out all of her rooster's records because she was tired of hearing nothing but bark, bark, bark. <laughs> <laughs> a woman asked a man, Do you go to see musicals? The man said, Only Sondheim's. <laughs> oh. That was Michael Anthony with Pun Hell Episode 1. So, Michael Anthony, do we have more Pun Hells look to look forward to? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I, I've recorded the the voiceover for the next episode. So just I'm editing and producing the animation, and it'll be up soon. Now, I've actually heard um, a recording that you've posted um, in social networking site before of your stand-up. How long have you been doing uh, performing stand-up comedy? Well, a stand-up, I... I'm not sure that I'm still doing so much stand-up, but comedy, I've been, well, I've been studying it for years, and I've been actually performing for the past uh, year or so, so Why about, you, about a year and change. So you said you're not sure if you're doing stand-up anymore. Is, 
what's the reason for that? Well, I just think that uh, although you want to create your own market, certainly, and try to push boundaries, I think that actually producing uh, things like Pun Hell and uh, other animated or uh, video projects is a way of, of finding my audience or having my audience find me, uh, especially via the internet, in ways that you know the the club scene doesn't offer as much. I mean, the the club scene is more designed around observational humor, or um, I mean, cer certain uh, I'd say certain comedians that uh, are kind of weird or or maybe one-liners do make it, but you know, there's a there's a context to that I don't think that uh, makes as much sense for the material that I'm developing, especially lately. What um, what about comedy attracted you to it? Well, comedy, oh, I <laughs> I just I I love to laugh and I, I love humor. I love wit. Always have. Uh, thinking back, I, I for a while I've been feeling as if. I, I, I were making kind of a career change because I, I went to school for fine art, and I was really focused on the art world and kind of got tired of it because it's kind of up its own ass, if I may say so. <laughs> so, really, humor, including in art school, humor was my best work. I I, I just <laughs> I developed kind of a following in school, just making these weird, uh, I call them retarded drawings, uh, <laughs> that, with these weird captions, and they really caught on. And even back in high school, I, I was writing humorous short stories based around a character, and, and I used to carry, at that time I was carrying George Carlin's brain droppings around like it was a Bible. Yeah. Along with my satanic Bible, actually. <laughs> so It could be argued they go pretty well hand-in-hand, hand, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's great. Um, when Was there ever... I mean, you went to school for fine arts, correct? Yes. And were your parents supportive of that decision? Oh, yeah. My, my parents are both artists, so that... It's pretty natural. So when you sort of turned to focus a little bit more on, on humor and comedy, was that an issue? Uh, well, that, that's been a lot more recent, you know, in, in, mm -hmm. in adulthood. But when I was and when I was younger, I, I always did lots of humorous drawings and writings. And, and yeah, so it was never, never an issue. I, I always had a lot of support for that. Have you always been a fan of, of more wit-based humor versus uh, observational, I guess? I'd say so, yes. But I, I appreciate all types of humor, but I'd say that uh, witty humor or humor that has a sense of language, you know, that's very much crafted, not just a, a rant, is, is my preference. Is that what turned you on to pun? Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> I think it might be hereditary. I think my, my my dad has uh, told me stories about when he was younger, and he used to uh, <laughs> he used to torture his friends with puns the way I torture mine. <laughs> nice. Do you ever find that it's it's lost 
uh, nowadays in, in conversation and even in appreciation? Well, you know, it's it's a lot more ubiquitous than than uh, I think people want to admit. You know, it's been put down as the lowest form of humor, but uh, I mean, since ancient times, there there since the beginning of language, there have been puns, and they used to have even religious significance to people, and and I think that although there, although it doesn't go that deep these days, it it definitely is a a popular way of interacting with the world. With uh, I I saw an ad for. Uh, McDonald's just yesterday a big billboard for their egg whites uh, sandwich it said uh, something like a great all yolks aside great great <laughs> taste nice <laughs> so it yeah. is it is out there I guess it, I it just, is people are in denial you know <laughs> do you think it's because I mean it's just lost on some people uh, you know there there are all levels of puns and but the the simple ones like all yolks aside that McDonald's used you know it, it's very it's very direct it doesn't take a lot to figure out and I, I think it really does amuse people so uh, I, I don't think it's lost I really don't yeah. nice I mean I'm in advertising so you know one thing you always want to do is have that sort of um, that moment where they were in is called, you know, a lot of people call it the aha moment or, or uh, where they actually get the joke or they get the point of or the concept that you're trying to put across. And hopefully it's entertaining and creative. And so, you know, for that, uh, speaking specifically to that McDonald's billboard, that would work wonderfully. Um, what was the what was the genesis behind Pun Hell uh, as, as a video series for you? Well, I've been uh, experimenting with different video formats to well really just one before this one which was kind of a paper puppet uh, s series that I was going to start and it just wasn't doing it for me and I thought back to pun hell and uh, which is a blog that I started about three years ago and I remembered hey I have this character that I made out of this devil character that I made out of punctuation marks yeah. and and uh, and a letter and it's pretty much type typography and uh, and I figured out a way to make it into a, a devil face and that that was a, a fun icon and I thought why not have him telling the jokes since he's been presiding over the the blog for all these years nice was there ever um I, well, I guess, what, what's your goal with this? My goal is to just share my my one-liners with more people. Well, not just one-liners, but just the uh, my my shorter jokes, my my puns, my wordplay with uh, just a, a good mix of people that I couldn't get in the clubs. Hmm. I mean, I had I had a good response in the clubs, I have to say, but uh, just for various reasons, including the fact that uh, I prefer doing voiceover work to being on stage, it's just a better format for me. There is this um, wonderful—I don't know if awkwardness is too strong a word—but 
when <laughs> when you uh, as the voiceover and as your devil um, character on on this video you know let, lets out that one liner and then then laughs at his own joke um, <laughs> is it i mean there's this wonderful awkwardness about that sort of uh, overt laughter almost like 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 the count from Sesame Street or something like that <laughs> i mean is this something that you're you're developing and and you just want to to keep in with it that sort of um uh, caricature of 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 uh, this um, creature, or or is that just part of your humor uh, as a whole? Uh, well, it's it's a way of it's kind of a a rim shot in a way, you yeah. know. Yeah. So it's a way of just really beating beating the 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 dead joke, I guess, if that's the uh, <laughs> phrase, beating a dead joke, but. Uh, really, it's yeah. It's really just to, to punch it up and to to give a little space between jokes, I guess. And and also, laughter is contagious. So even if it's really, really just torturously forced laughter, I think that that, that can be just. It's, I uh, a magister, a certain magister, gave me a paid me a great compliment by saying that there's something really insidious about the pun work that I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that there's a, a specific audience, like a, a demographic, that is more in tune with the pun than not? I'd say it, it definitely tends to draw a more literate crowd. And although I, I think the literate crowd is the one that that probably enjoys it the most, or the on uh, um, the most levels, but as I was saying before. There, there are puns everywhere, wordplay yeah. everywhere, and probably the the very young and the very old are the least ashamed to admit it. <laughs> but the pleasure is, I, I think, I think does reach a lot of people, whether or not they admit it. Yeah, why? Why do you think that is? Why do you think that it it does speak to you know certain age demographics more than others? I think the, those are the groups that are not afraid of just pure pleasure and just admitting that they're it's an, it's an indulgence really. Yeah. And you have this whole middle range between the very young and the very old that are just full of hang-ups that they they can't get over and they can't even enjoy their hang-ups. They they're just <laughs> fraught with all this uh, I guess if others are not giving them permission <laughs> to enjoy these things and if the prevailing attitude is that puns are the lowest form of humor then <laughs> they're trying to fit into that attitude even though they don't really feel it yeah yeah um how about you, now? I mean, you already mentioned that you're you're recording the next pun hell, right? I've I've recorded the the voiceover track, and I'm just editing it. Okay, so I mean, how many of these do you do you see inside? I I don't really see any end to it as long as I mean, even even if certain things take off, I think there'll always be a, a place for it because yeah. it's a, it's really a nice basic format that will always be an outlet probably for 
what I'm working on. So are, are all of these puns ones that you have developed, or have you um, brought some oldie but goodies uh, out to light too? No, I, I always strive to have completely original puns, and I'm sure that there may be some overlap at some point with previously uh, constructed puns, but that's just the nature of wordplay. Things have been done before, but hopefully the way that it's formulated is uniquely satisfying. I guess this is maybe a common misconception on comedy. I mean, you know, I imagine there's a mass of people that get into it because they think, oh, well, you know, my friends laugh at what I'm saying and they, they think it's a lot of, uh, you know, just they think I'm funny and so I can just get up on stage and just be a comedian. Um, but what people don't realize a lot of the time is that it, it takes a significant amount of work. I mean, is this something that it, it, it could very well just be a full-time job of crafting these puns? Well, that would, that would be great. <laughs> if you got paid for it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, the uh, the thing is that wordplay can go so, to so many different places. I, I did have an interest in the past in getting into advertising, and I, I did an internship for copywriting a little after uh, college. and But I, I think that maybe I, I would have enjoyed the golden age a little more than the current day where it's all, you know, market research that, you know, doesn't really, it's more, it's more of a, a passive medium these days. We're just trying to give in to the, the crowd rather than shape the crowd. Absolutely. I, yeah. But, and there is certainly, you know, something to be enjoyed in that, but, I prefer to kind of impose my tastes on, <laughs> on the audience and get them to to enjoy it. You know? So, is that something that you're trying, you're actively trying to do, is 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 grow your audience, or are you happy with people finding you on their own terms? Well, I'm kind of feeling that out. It this is not the only type of humor I work on. It's just right. happens to be the most satisfying to me. So. I'm I'm doing a lot of writing. I, I'm I'm uh, involved in a, a bit of sketch comedy right now. I'm just getting into that a little more, which is I guess what I've been doing since I I've done less stand up, mm -hmm. and so there'll be more narrative work that I'll be doing in the future, and I think that. I'm just I'm feeling out my audience. I'm not really looking for just one particular thing. And ultimately, I'd love to just work on all kinds of writing. I th yeah, and I think that is ideal. I mean, certainly as a as far as writers go, I mean, you you have to be able to adapt to you know the job that, that's available at the time. And but it is always nice to have creative outlets like Pun Hell. Well, where can people go online? Where where can they find you online um, if they want to learn a little bit more about you? Well, I have punhell.com and also michaelanthonyland.com, kind of like Disneyland, but yeah. with Michael Anthony. Except cooler. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, it's been a lot of fun talking to you, and I, I do truly love the entire pun hell concept, and I hope you keep doing them for some time because uh, it, it's, it's just sort of... Um, 
I, I think it's a missing outlet nowadays. I mean, there were amazing people like George Carlin that were true wordsmiths that that looked for that creative turn of phrase that is really missing in puns. Um, it may be seen as the lowest common denominator, but it's also a universal humor that, that I, I truly appreciate. And it's nice to know that there's other people out there that are sort of bearing that torch and, and uh, bringing it to the forefront in an original way, uh, a creative way. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I, I really appreciate your, your interest and support. And I will be working on, if, it, if not this, then... Uh... There'll be lots of puns in the future. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Until uh, until we can talk again or, or shake hands again, hail Satan. Hail Satan. And that is going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd love to hear from you. Visit the website, 9centspodcast.com. Send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 cents via iTunes by searching 9 cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com, and if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, the source for online satanic media. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, hail Satan.